Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Gardener by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, this was probably first published in McCall's, April 1925. I've got uh, a few dates on different magazine publications there's another one saying that it was published in the strand may 1925 but i don't believe that i think it's, it was the may 1926 um the re the version we're reading it out of is uh from a book that came out in 1926 called debits and credits this is um a very powerful short story um a lot of people who don't like kipling still like this story and um it's got quite a, a punch packed in it, but you have to you have to read it the right right way, I guess, to see that. Um, you you have some thoughts on the, on how people should read this. I, I think that it's uh, a story that requires one to come to a fundamental understanding ultimately of something that was not clear at the beginning. Mm. Now, there are stories like this. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil this story for anyone who's kind enough to listen to our discussion of it. So let me say um, Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game is a novel in which I have had discussion with students and some students at the very end when it, the, you know, the big reveal comes that Ender hasn't been playing a video game after all, but really has been through electronic media slaughtering actual sentient beings. Um, this, this revelation that makes the whole novel go, whoa, that's what's been going on. There are other people, uh, and I was one of them, who sort of figure this out quite quite soon they realize that it's hidden and so the reading of the novel is not one that depends upon revelation it's one that depends upon seeing how this apparently hidden reality is manifest in the narration of the story as it goes along mm -hmm. these are two very different kinds of reading mm -hmm. and if we were to give um to discuss this story, to discuss The Gardener by Kipling, which is a great story in my mm. estimation. I'm so glad you suggested it, Jesse. We can't discuss it without saying what's at the ending. But some people will have read it if they read it before we discuss it one way and others will read it another way. Mm -hmm. Some of them will get it at the end. Some of them will get it early. In fact, it's so subtly done but some may never get it at all. And yeah. so, so I guess what I'd like to say is I don't see how you and I can discuss this story without laying bare what we think is the ultimate plot. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that you and I will agree on ultimately <laughs> what we see the plot to be. Maybe I'm wrong, I but I don't so. see how we can do it without that. And so, if, if someone wants to preserve his or her opportunity to experience the story freshly, um, I guess I'd ask them to consider 
hitting the pause button here, going over to the website, mm-hmm. downloading the PDF of the story, reading it, and when they've had a chance to to be enriched by the tale, then perhaps come back and listen to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I would say that you you should read it either way. Um, I I can't remember whether I knew what the secret of this story was, but um, it doesn't matter. This story is power, powerful, powerful, and and the magic that that Kipling uses to compose this power, so that I think per, any any close reader, any person who's actually paying close attention, will have some questions at least at the end if they don't actually explicitly get it. And I think I think we can point to some of the those magical devices that he uses um but first i want to make it explicit um what genre (laughs) is this story eric because it's not mimetic fiction to me that's a very interesting question jesse um if we think that the story concerns a woman let me try to give a summary that doesn't answer that question so that I can then pose an sure, answer without giving sure. too much away. Okay. So the story is called The Gardener. It begins with an epigraph that includes the words Judgment Day at the beginning mm. uh, and the stone rolled away, which is apparently what one comes to understand. It's a reference to the opening of the cave in which Jesus's bury had been lain after his uh, crucifixion. Uh, the story then concerns uh, and that line is repeated in the epigraph and it's rolled the stone away. The story concerns Ellen, Helen Terrell. It says she did her duty by all the world and none more so than by her, her brother's son. Then we are told that, that Helen does her duty. She is very concerned with being proper. She is relentlessly honest. In fact, um, she takes on the, the nephew, um, in a sense, taking her from um, the nephew's rightful mother, who the story tells us was the daughter of a non-commissioned officer in the Indian police, um, that her brother had lowered himself terribly by having uh, married such a woman. So, But she pays off the woman and keeps the son. Uh, she had been in France ill Um, she finishes recuperating. The son is brought to her by a nurse from India. She takes the son and raises him as a son, although she's always honest and lets the world know that, um, in fact, she's his aunt and, uh, she should call him auntie. Uh, but as a, a pet name between them, if he wants to call her mummy, as the other boys call their mothers, uh, she can call him, he can call her that at, at, bedtime, um, which they do, uh, child, but then he learns the real story and is angry at her and yet immediately reverts to calling her mummy. He turns out to be a wonderful young man. She raises him with the best she can give by way of advice, example, counsel, financial support. He goes to Oxford on scholarship, um, or is about to go to Oxford on scholarship, um, 
No, I guess he go. No, he's about to go. He's but in, in his, pre, yeah, yeah, in his public school, which is British for what we in North America call private school, um, the officer training corps involves him, as was done with most young fellows just before World War One. And he he winds up going off. Um, he's posted by accident at many safe places, but just the night before, he thinks that he is going to uh, uh, continue in a boring way in France. Um, he gets hit by a shell, and a follow-up shell knocks over the foundation of a of a barn, so that he's buried, and you can't even tell that he was there. He remains unfound for quite a while, but then he gets found. She receives the horrible letter and she goes uh, now. She knows he's not missing. He is dead. And uh, she takes a trip to the cemetery in the course of the, the travel and the staying at the hotel outside the cemetery and so on. She encounters a woman who says that she comes, she didn't lose anyone herself, but she comes many times. She's, this is her eighth or ninth trip um, as a commission for other people who just want to know that the grave of their loved ones, what's called your grave, interesting ambiguity there, mm-hmm. um, is visited and she takes photos to bring them back. But at the end of the evening, after Helen Terrell has gone away from Mrs. Scarsworth, an excellent name, mm-hmm. Mrs. Scarsworth knocks on her door. And she says, I just have to tell someone. And the reality is we come to understand by indirection. It's never explicit. Um, She had a lover, a man she was not allowed to acknowledge the love of. I presume that he was married. Um, And we find out that he meant everything to her for six years and four months. I think it is before the war, before we're told, and so many months uh, after uh, so many years and months after, in other words, his death is the before and after in this in Mrs. Scarsworth's life. And she, Helen, asks, "Why are you telling me this?" And the woman says, "I had to be honest with someone." And Helen looks at her and says to her, she takes her hands, which are clasped, and says to her, "My dear." And the woman says, my God, is that how you take it? And goes away. (laughs) Um, And how we interpret that scene is, uh, I think, crucial here. The next day, Helen goes to the cemetery. It's weeded. It's not easy to find an appropriate grave. She sees a man who is tending uh, plants at one grave. Um, She approaches him to ask for directions. She thinks he might be the gardener. And he looks up. And immediately says, which is your which grave, which is your grave? She says what she's looking for. He leads her there. After as she's leaving, she looks and she sees him. The last lines are. When Helen left the cemetery, she turned for a last look in the distance. She saw the man bending over his young plants and she went away, supposing him to be the gardener. So, for me, the, the, the definitive way of making sure that you're right about your conclusions at the end of this story is to look at the title, right? Why is this story called The Gardener? He's barely in it, right? Um, I say, oh, 
okay, maybe there's some more significance to that scene. Um, and there is, right? So I'm just going to read the, the two preceding uh, paragraphs, or the I guess the three preceding paragraphs before the final one, um, just so we follow exactly what's going on. A man knelt behind a line of headstones, evidently a gardener, for he was firming a young plant in the soft earth. She went towards him, her paper in her hand. He rose at her approach and, without prelude or salutation, asked, Who are you looking for? Lieutenant Michael Chirell, my nephew, said Helen slowly and word for word, as she had many thousands of times in her life. The man lifted his eyes and looked at her with infinite compassion before he turned from the fresh sown grass towards the naked black crosses come with me he said and i will show you where your son lies so how does this guard oh this gardener just made a mistake right he wasn't listening very closely to what she was saying because uh, it was her nephew she was looking for but at that point in reading the story you go if you're paying attention, then you look to the title and you say, what, what's going on? Oh, this guy knows the secret that I guess I've just discovered myself, right? And how does he know this? Oh, well, it seems like everybody knows in this story except for the reader. I want to go back to the very first sentence and just look at, at the part of the first sentence, not even the whole first sentence, just the first few words. Everyone in the village knew. And in fact, that line comes up in the very next sentence. It starts like this. The village knew. <laughs> Everyone knew. Um, wow. And then I, I've got selected lines throughout. I'm like going back through it. I'm highlighting all over the place. Um, because he totally is telling us all the way through that Helen is not um, telling the truth. And she claims to be telling the truth, but she's not telling the truth at all. Uh, here's on the page 400. Helen was as open as the day. Scandals are only increased by hushing them up. Oh, next, next, a uh, little farther down. People of that class would do almost anything for money. She's talking about her, her, her father, or her, her brother's uh, lover who was a non-commissioned officer. Uh, no, it's the uh, daughter of a non-commissioned officer. Right, the daughter of a non-commissioned officer. That's right. right. But, but but not lover. In, in theory, I thought she married her. He married, didn't he? <laughs> How would we know? This is not a true story. Of course. Um, and then uh, farther down, in describing how her, she's very, being very charitable to this, this um, uh, poor little orphan, uh, she says, so far as she knew herself, she was not, she said, a child lover, um, I guess. Uh, but I, that made me thinking, like, who is who is the father? And I, I, I went looking. Many people have speculation online. But actually, I, I'm not sure that that matters as much as the idea of, of thinking about what he's called at school. So when Michael gets old enough to go to uh, school for, you know, boarding school, essentially. Um, he he comes back hurt and upset 
and I'll just read that. This is on page 402. At 10 years old, after two terms at prep school, something or somebody gave him the idea that his civil status was not quite regular. Um, and then this line. He t attacked Helen on the subject, breaking down her stammering defenses with a family directness. Don't believe a word of it, he said cheerily at the end. People wouldn't have talked like that, uh, wouldn't talked like they did if my people had been married. But don't you bother, Auntie. I've found out all about my sort in English history and the Shakespeare bits. There was William the Conqueror to begin with, and oh, heaps more, and they all got on first rate. Twon't make it any difference to you, my being that, will it? And it's like, what is what is this civil status stuff? Oh, and it's like, William the Conqueror. Yeah, yeah he's famous. <laughs> What's he famous for? He's famously a bastard, right? That's what happened. So we are left to interpret and think about what's going on, going back, like, all these, all these incidents that are adding up to something, right? Um, when she says to him, um, you're not to call me mummy because I'm not your mummy, I'm your auntie. But secretly, at bedtime, you can call me that if you want, like the other boys call their mom, uh, mummies. <laughs> um, she then lies. Uh, well, she doesn't lie. She... She doesn't. She makes their secret pact public by telling her friends that uh, this pet name is being used. So I'm going to read this. Michael kept his secret most loyally, but Helen, as usual, explained the facts to her friends, which then Michael heard. He raged. Why did you tell? Why did you tell? Came at the end of the storm. Because it is always best to tell the truth. Helen answered, her arm around him as he shook in his cot. All right, but when the truth's ugly, I don't think it's nice. Don't you, dear? No, I don't. She felt the small boy stiffen. Now you've told I won't call you mummy anymore, not even at bedtimes. But it isn't, but isn't that rather unkind? said Helen softly. I don't care, I don't care. You've hurted me in my insides, and I'll hurt you back. I'll hurt you as long as I live. This is so such a touching, powerful scene, but thinking like, why why did she tell? Why did she tell her friends? Because she's she's someone in need of infinite compassion. Uh, could you read a little further from what you sure. were just reading, Jesse? Uh, he goes on saying, "I'll hurt you." Yep. Yeah. Don't oh don't talk like that, dear. You don't know what I will, and when I'm dead, I'll hurt you worse. And that's where we get to the end of the story. Yeah, so... It's, because she's hurting worse when she gets to the end. It's very interesting. Is what, 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 what's going on is, is, is... This is her bastard son. She's not married to his dad. We don't know who the father is. Um, we've got Mrs. Scarsworth, who gives her the opportunity to tell the truth, and she denies it. She is denying the truth throughout the story. It's very interesting thinking about what people think about this story because a lot of people, they're t calling her a heroine and that she can't possibly, because she's so good, she can't possibly have uh, made up these lies about her brother, right? Being, uh, you know, cheating or 
disgracing himself and all of this stuff with so it's all lies her whole life is a fabrication and it comes up so many times um there's a just a casual line uh on this is on page 404 on the bottom paragraph in france again helped the battalion uh, luck again helped the battalion it was put down near the salient where it had led to a meritorious and unexpected unexacting life while the psalm was being manufactured you yeah. don't manufacture a battle like that i guess i mean you could but uh on page 406 we get that word again uh this is in the second paragraph once on one of Michael's leaves, he had taken her over a munitions factory where she saw the progress of a shell from blank iron to all but the finished article. It struck her at the time that the wretched thing was never left alone for a single second. And I'm being manufactured into a bereaved next of kin, she told herself as she prepared her documents. She has forced herself to continue the lie. And yet, when she does meet uh, a woman while she's trying to find organize her grave, there's a lower class woman who comes in and breaks down and has to be taken away to a cot, just like her son. Um, and we're told yesterday, uh, yeah, I'm just this is page 408. They're often like this, said the officer's wife, loosening the n tight bonnet strings. Yesterday, she said he'd been killed at the Hoog. Are you sure you know your grave? It makes such a difference. She She's given an opportunity to tell the truth again. Good, and, Matt, I'm yep. sorry. I, I want to talk about some of the, the language use that you've been pointing to here, Jesse. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a brilliantly told story. Um that paragraph on 406, uh, when they go to the munition factory, mm -hmm. Michael took her through the munition factory um, where she saw the iron shell from blank iron to the all but finished article. The all but finished article. Can you really believe that you go to a munition factory and they don't show you the shell at the end? Of course not. The real end of the making of a munition is the death that it causes. Right. And when she's asked, do you know your grave? It means, in fact, in some sense, you die. When you, you know, That's where your true death is. When your son, you, you've come to visit your son, and it's in your death mm. that, that you need the infinite compassion. The story uses free and direct style. We're getting things in part through Helen's viewpoint, so we could easily be fooled into believing that she is, in fact, honest. But the story gives us not only the hints you've pointed at, but allusions to in two ways. One having to do with the use of metaphor, this notion of manufacturing, mm. that this is an industrial, an industrial war. And that people have become dehumanized by the very processes. In fact, he's called, Michael is called up because of the disaster at Luz. And Luz is the place where Kipling's son was killed. Mm -hmm. Many people suggest that Kipling is 
urging himself to believe that there is some infinite compassion mm -hmm. for the losses of war, in part because Kipling himself was so jingoistic and such a proponent of war. So we have the, the, the political tensions and the, the economic tensions caught up in the language that this story uses, but also we have the allusions. The very beginning, um, one grave to me was given, one grave, all right? You have your grave, well, there is one grave for you, one watch till judgment day. This is the ultimate end, and God looked down from heaven and rolled the stone away. So who is the one where God looks down from heaven and rolls the stone away? That's his son, mm -hmm. right? And when the gardener says, I'll take you to your son, right? It, she said, he says, uh, she looks at him, supposing him to be the gardener. That's mm -hmm. the last line, right? Mm -hmm. She walked out in the distance. She saw the man bending over his young plants and she went away, supposing him to be the gardener. This is the King James Bible, John twenty fifteen. Jesus saith unto her, Mary Magdalene, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, mm -hmm. saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Now, of course, no one suggests that Jesus was Mary Magdalene's son, any more than one suggests that Mrs. Scarworth is visiting the grave of her son. Mm -hmm. It's the grave of a lover, and people have often suggested that one could look at Mary Magdalene, or Maudlin as it's pronounced in England, um, as uh, a lover, or certainly a spiritual lover um, of Jesus. She doesn't recognize him in that change. And at the end of this story, Helen, who wants to think of herself as relentlessly honest and open, but in fact lives her life as an entire lie. She went away supposing him to be the gardener. And at this point, we are hearing the author, not the, the just the, the, I mean, the narrator, not just the, the consciousness of the character. She still supposes him mm -hmm. to be the gardener. She does not recognize that there is potentially, if one were a believer, a source of infinite compassion. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the story doesn't tell us that there is that source of in infinite compassion, only that one can see that it could be possible. In other words, the story doesn't really, I think, let us, it, it's not like saying, yes, there's Jesus in the world and he can heal you. Um, but it sort of says that one can imagine that there's Jesus in this world and, and he could sort of heal you. And that's how we get back to your initial question, mm -hmm. Jess. Because if all of this is about the psychology of projecting a heaven and a, and a savior out of one's emotional needs, then the story, in fact, is mimetic. Mm -hmm. It's a realistic story. But if, in fact, this is a story in which the sacred and the secular intersect, then this is a story that believes that there is something supernatural. And in that sense, if you're a believer, you just think of it as theological. And if you're a non-believer, you think of it as fantastic. I think one of the brilliant things about the story is that we can try to assign it to one genre or another. 
we can try to find a reason for it to be in one genre or another. But no matter how we decide to settle on the story from a formal literary standpoint, we wind up being overwhelmed by the agony of someone who has loved, loved fearfully, and yet loved passionately, and has had that love taken away. And that, that human connection that we can feel with long-suffering Helen, it seems to me, is what makes the story so powerful. Mm -hmm. It transcends genre. I want to just point out that um, there's another illegitimate son in this story other than hers. It's it's Jesus. Um, And uh, Mrs. Scarsworth, uh, I think of her as sort of another incarnation of Jesus because she's got those those uh, stigmata right uh, she's got her photographs and she's got her books but she's there actually to try to redeem helen and the other amazing thing is the description of all of these dead soldiers in these uh, all the black crosses which it would have you you hear the word but visualizing what is all around right all these black crosses um therefore quote-unquote the fallen and of course if the truth were known and everyone in the village knew then she would be helen would be considered a fallen woman for from a christian viewpoint that's exactly right so that no no from a christian viewpoint we are all the fallen. That's exactly right. There's this uh, very interesting tension between between how this war was manufactured, and we're not going to talk about that. It it happened. It was terrible, and Kipling himself he was inspired to write this story because he got involved with the War Graves Commission. He wrote pamphlets, uh, you know, trying to uplift it, and went and talked to the gardeners. And they never found his son. He has no grave. But he met all these people, many people who were coming. And they were coming because they had lost someone. And sometimes they weren't allowed to say who they had lost. And, of course, many times they couldn't even find their their child. Because of those artillery shells that were just manufactured and sent off. Of course, Kipling had was a writer. Uh, he could not let go of the death of his son. He was inspired to write this by his work, un- undoubtedly, but I do not doubt for a moment that he was inspired to write it by the loss of his son and by his recognition, I think, that to some extent he helped in the manufacture of the war. Mm -hmm. No, a writer today is not what a writer was in Homer's time. A writer today participates in the technological reproduction of those words. And the words have meaning for more and more people. And this is a story about how each of those people, those huge losses, like the Battle of Luce, which is the most 
costly in terms of casualties Battle of Britain um, in 1915, how each of those people could generate its own story as you keep manufacturing, there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.